Where was Solomon's temple located? On the side of his head. <laughs> what did Adam say the day before Christmas? Eve? Something about Eve? It's Christmas. Eve? <laughs> Eve. Eve. <laughs> Who do mice pray to? Jesus. Oh. Jesus! Yeah! the Jesus. How do you make holy water? <laughs> you take some regular water and boil the devil out of it. <laughs> and the final one. I just saw this one. How long did Cain hate his brother? Oh, as long as he was able. Those were all really hard to figure out, except G's thing that Gary got Yeah, how'd you get that one, G? I don't know. Because he's kind of a cheesy kind of guy. That's Thank why. you. <laughs> Thank you very much. The cheese stands alone. Who do uh, mice pray to? Jesus. I've seen that on. All right, so we're in uh, 2 Kings chapter 8, and uh, the title is God is Faithful Even When We're Not. Um, Y'all remember the E.F. Hutton commercials? Yeah. Like when he speaks, everybody yeah. listens? Yeah. Well, I think people sometimes, well, Ecclesiastes actually says a heart of man grows more evil when judgment is delayed. People actually think they'll get away with what they're doing. Um, I, I mean, if, if people realized they couldn't get away with it, we wouldn't have murder, we wouldn't have you know, any crime, actually. Uh, people would behave themselves. But people think that they can get away with doing what they're doing. And then there comes a point uh, like when the Lord spoke with Abraham, he said, you guys are going to be slaves in a country for 400 plus years, and then I'm going to take you out. But in between now and then, the iniquity of the Amorites, it's not yet complete. And so he gives us time. Man, my nose are around with all this pollen. He gives us time to repent. He gives us time always to see our, our error like when you look at Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, he you know lived like an animal for what seven years, and then all of a sudden he came to his senses. That's what the Lord is waiting on uh, for us to do, and so that's why it's it's good to never stop praying unless the Lord tells you, and then even then just push the limits, like Jeremiah did, and he's like, no, I'm going to keep praying, I'm going to keep praying for these people, but sometimes he'll be like, stop, you know, because now it's time for judgment. And uh, so now we're getting to a point in the history of the kings where the nations are about to be taken captive and the nation of Israel uh, under its own sovereign ruler is coming to an end. Uh, and then Judah will be not far behind. So in 2 Kings 8, 1 through 3, it'd probably be wise to look at the journey of a nation in decline and maybe begin to gather some prayer points for America um, like I was just thinking this morning, I've been reading this book called uh, Putin's Handbook, and it's basically his his ideas on destroying America, and it's written by a lady that was in the CIA who was born in uh, Russia, and so she understands how Russians think. Like, do you know they do not have the word fun in their dictionary? Yeah, struggling sacrifice is very normal for them. They lost 20 million of their population in World War II, not to mention the ones that their you know their own rulers killed. Uh, now you remember how they um, bombed that? Was it a theater or something that where they wrote children very big on the ground over in Ukraine, and they specifically bombed it? Um, the worst thing you could have done was write children. Because in their military playbook, if you go after innocence, 
it'll force the hand of the country to sit at the negotiating table. So they have no problem killing children or infants or mothers that are in labor or hospitals or anything like that. And so then when you have people that get uh, on TV and call for the removal of Putin from power and that call for uh, their own citizens to kill their leader, which he has a very high approval rate actually over there, um, when you have that happen, they're playing into his hand and they're actually provoking him to more um, serious threat. And uh, so I was just thinking about these people that go around, Americans that go around and say things they shouldn't say, and I realize we're a very prideful people. And one of the things that's going to be important is the humility to come on this land and for us to repent of hubris and to repent of thinking that we are all that and more because we're actually provoking nations into war. And uh, not saying that we should take the blame for Putin being a degenerate um, poop bird, but the fact remains that he would have never attacked Ukraine unless Calamity Kamala would have uh, not gotten on stage and said they're a NATO ally. NATO is his enemy. So we've got to understand our enemy, and we have to understand how he will try to take advantage of us as far as humans, as far as a nation, as far as states. But more importantly, we need to understand how God thinks. Because if he says something, that's it. The only thing that we have uh, to shift it is prayer, where Moses was like, Lord, now you brought these people out. If you destroy them, then the nations are going to talk bad about you. You know, uh, now, did God need his mind changed? No. He was testing the heart of Moses. But there is a, um, a principle with the Lord that I think is important to understand. Um, we are sovereign. He is sovereign. He actually allows us to influence him. That's interesting. Uh, like I tell people, like in marriages, one of the key things for a successful marriage is to allow the other to influence you. Um, you know, those little things, the looks, the kind acts, the um, discussions, all of those things, allowing the good parts of their personality to become yours and vice versa. Well, with the Lord, He's lacking nothing, and yet He still has confined Himself within relationship with us. And so it's important to understand that, and when we approach Him, to approach Him with that manner. Uh, we're not slaves uh, in a master relationship. In fact, it's either Haggai or Hosea. It might be Hosea that talks about the fact that the Lord said, if one day, on that day, they will no longer call me master, they will call me husband. And so that's the level of relationship that He is desiring and so uh, when we approach him in prayer, it's not, um, and, and I'm, I mean, we, we are servants, but you understand what I mean, that there's always a higher level of relationship. So when you're approaching him on particular matters, you are co-seated in heavenly places with him as an equal. Christ made us equal. And so we're discussing matters. And we're telling him, this, this is what I would like to see in this situation. And so you share his, your heart. He might share his heart perspective. And then you allow one another to influence. And then you come to a reasonable conclusion of prayer. Meaning you now have what you're supposed to pray and how you're supposed to pray it. That's how that's supposed to work. For people that live under a slave mentality, a master mentality, what I'm saying just sounds absolutely ridiculous and possibly borderline blasphemous. But if you look in the Bible, that is how it is. And Jesus said, if you see me, you see him. That's how it should be. So that's why I've been saying over and over in this entire series, you must challenge what you think. Well, and I think the Song of Solomon is a perfect example of that. Because it's all about the longing. Yep. The, you know, the exchange. Come to me, yes. And, mm -hmm. and you could see that interchange between the bride and, yeah. and the groom. Yeah. And really, I mean, the, there's not a selfish bone in the Lord's body. And selfishness is when you continue with your thoughts, continue with your ideas, your actions, your theories, whatever it is, in spite of what others are telling you around you, right? It's like if people are telling you something like, 
one of my planners, it's for an I personality, there's a check-in eyes must do where they, they, they pause and they take stock. Has someone been repeatedly asking me to do something or has someone repeatedly been telling me that something I do is uh, harming our relationship? Because I personalities in particular can be oblivious to what others are telling them or they just choose not to listen. And so I have that specifically in the planner. Holy Spirit said, make sure you put that in the planner. But anybody that is focused on their own things can fall into that level of pattern and behavior, right? So we need to always challenge our thoughts, always be attentive uh, to people around us, always be attentive to what Holy Spirit's saying. Kind of like what you know, Mr. Trump said, this could be mercy. What we're seeing, this could be mercy because this nation is in trouble. There's too much stacked up against her. And so something radical has to happen or we're not going to have a country. If people think that we're too young to fall, they're mistaken. Just study history. And so you can't keep putting your fist in the face of God and not think that eventually He's going to have to judge. He doesn't want to. But in 2 Kings, we see that in uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now Elisha said to the woman whose son had been restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, because the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon this land for seven years. So the woman arose, and she did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Okay, so this is where we want to be. We want to hear Holy Spirit so well that if He says, move, you move. Right? Jesus talked about this when He said, when you see these certain signs, you need to go into your house, grab whatever you can, and leave. And there's historical record that Christians that saw Titus's army coming and surrounding the land got out before the siege. So they moved. They left Israel and went to like Rome and different countries uh, because they knew. Uh, it's the same thing in, in history where the people of God heard him say, get out, Joseph, go to Egypt because you're going to get killed if you don't leave. So we need to pay attention. If he says turn down this street versus the street you normally take, just do it. Don't ask questions. Just do it. Uh, add a little bit of uh, change. You know, um, get up earlier. Don't eat the food you might or normally eat uh, in the day. Begin to toughen up a little bit. We're, we're way too soft. And, uh, I mean, can you imagine? And I'm not an alarmist. I don't think armies going to surround America and destroy us. I do know that there were um, nuclear-armed submarines just going about the Gulf Coast years ago during Obama's uh, term when undetected for weeks. So the point is, is we need to remain flexible and adaptable in all aspects of our lives. And uh, so here's this lady. We've got Elisha who is doing a double portion. Did you ever think that double portion anointing would also mean double portion judgment? So now we've got three and a half years of Elijah. Now with Elisha, it's seven years of famine, which is a prophetic picture of the end of the age. This famine was meant to cause the leaders to return to the Lord. Okay? And so it's a repeat of Elijah's story. I mean, if you look over and over, there's a few little stories thrown in there. But here we have this lady that blessed the prophet and cared for him and opened up a blessing for her and her family. And she obeyed the prophet and she went to a land. I mean, that would be so hard to leave your home and leave your, your, your house, your memories, your people. Now it's time to come back. And so the king was talking with Gehazi. There he is again. I guess he got saved. Or, I mean, well, maybe he got saved. Uh, but he must have gotten healed of leprosy. He says, tell me the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha 
had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king of her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman. Here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left until now. Now, what are the chances? So again, this requires hearing Holy Spirit's voice. Holy Spirit said, get up, go back home. She got up, went back home, just happened to go before the king while Gehazi was telling the king what Elisha had done for her son. It's like, what? What a coincidence. I was just talking about you, right? That's the kind of situation that's occurring, and she's going to get back pay. Now, this Gehazi thing, he just keeps showing up like a bad penny. You notice that? Every time you turn around, there's Gehazi. So I want to know what is going on. Okay, there's several ideas around him popping up again. And even archaeologists, they're not sure. They're not <coughs> sure how he keeps showing up. But the most sensible, um, sensible part, uh, theory is the chapters were written out of order. Okay? And that could be that the author had a theme and a goal. I studied this, and that's the, the predominant thought, huh? They're not in order. Mm -hmm. really Other, and, I, and to me, I tend to believe this because the reason why is in chapter 7, we see there was a famine there uh, as well as Benadad besieging Samaria. But then in chapter 8, I think we see the behind-the-scenes story. So the famine that's referred to in chapter 7, I believe is the one that Elisha called for here in chapter 8. So we're seeing a behind the scenes of how God took care of um, the lady. Okay. The other idea is that uh, leprosy was a, a skin disease, and it could be any uh, skin disease. Some made you unclean, and you had to isolate, but others didn't. So either Gehazi repented and was healed and able to serve, um, which I don't know. I just don't see either one of the prophets letting him back into their their graces, but maybe. Or he's updating the king on Elisha's activities when the woman comes in to have her home and land restored. Uh, so he might have had one that he didn't have to isolate uh, skin disease. I don't know. But I do think that this chapter is definitely a behind the scenes of chapter 7. Okay, so now we're in verse 7. It says, Elisha came to Damascus. Benadad, the king of Syria, he was sick. And when it was told him, uh, the man of God has come here, the king uh, said to Hazel, take a present with you and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazel, Hazel went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods. Hazael? Okay. Oh, Hazael. Hazael. Of Damascus, 40 camels loads. Golly. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Benadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall recover from this sickness. And Elisha said, Go say to him, You'll certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he fixed his gaze, and he stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He said, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with a sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this thing? Elijah said, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Israel. Now, that doesn't mean it was necessarily God's will. Hazael has some, uh, you know, thoughts in his head of... Syria. Huh? Syria. King over Syria. Oh, okay. Not Israel. Um, yeah, Syria. But um, it doesn't mean that God is uh, endorsing him being king. It just means that he has some plans in his heart for the leader, Benadad. Okay. Now, Hazael was called the son of nobody in uh, our like records and archaeological records and things like that, implying 
that he was a usurper or upstart that ruled Syria. Uh, but remember, in 1 uh, Kings 19.17, Elijah actually appointed him to be king over Syria. So there's some interesting things going on here, some interesting dynamics. And so basically, he's given him a word like, you're not going to die of this illness, but you're going to die. And then the prophet's staring at uh, Mr. H for a long time. So long that embarrassed him, which tells me he already had these thoughts in his heart of what he wanted to do. And he obviously hated Israel. And uh, so Elisha is seeing all the things that he's going to do. And he's weeping over it. Okay? Um, let's see. So he departed from Elisha, verse 14. He came to his master and he said, well, what did Elisha say? And he said, well, he told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth, dipped it in water, and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. Okay, so he assassinated him. And there's a lot of historical record about his reign. Um, to me, it's one of those pictures of, as a king, don't overlook the one that is a nobody. Because they're usually the ones that are working behind the scenes to become somebody. And uh, so that's interesting that he didn't even see him as a threat. Those are usually the most dangerous. Okay, in uh, verse 16 through 17, it says, In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in um, uh, Jerusalem. Oh, and I um, put in here the First Kings 19 uh, passage for you. Uh, let's see. Okay. Um, so let me backtrack here. At first, and he reminds me of a person, uh, uh, I'm just going to call him King H, because I don't want to say his name anymore. <laughs> um, he, he at first was a benefit to Israel like the Antichrist will be. You know, they'll make a treaty. And so he definitely has the Antichrist spirit. Uh, he helped eradicate uh, Bel, Belism, and that may be why he was chosen at first, is because he did eradicate that. But he also appears to be a judgment against Israel. So that's why a lot of people will say uh, a wicked or immature leader is judgment on a nation. The judgment's not necessarily complete judgment, meaning it's going to absolutely destroy. It's like it comes in waves. You know, like birth pangs. That's what the birth pangs are for. First, you have a little bit of trouble. Then you have more. And then more. And then more. Until finally, judgment for those who hate God is birthed. And then deliverance for those who love God arrives. So that's what it is. It's like players are being put in place that are assigned a specific purpose. So for King H, he's removing Belism, uh, but also he's going to be a thorn in the side of Israel, and he's going to weaken them as a nation with the purpose of hopefully calling them and causing them to repent. But, you know, they don't. So, he reigned from 841 to 797 B.C., he almost eliminated Israel entirely as a military power. Now, this account is the one of Elisha interacting with him. Uh, and, you know, we see that he uh, sees himself as a dog. Um, but he's still anointed as king by Elisha. And so all these years later, he's, he still doesn't see himself as king. But now he takes that prophetic word and he removes um, the appointed king, Benadad. Now, there's an ancient writing called the Apology of... Can you say that again, Roberta, his name? Hazael. Suriano, the author, tries to connect his father to an important leader of the Aramean uh, tribe. Now, Aram back then was Syria, implying that he came from a family with ruling experience in an attempt to lead, legitimize his rule. 
Soriano also notes a prophetical oracle endorsed his claim. And so a lot of scholars, uh, they use the word HMLK, uh, they use that word corresponding to the biblical account of Elijah and Elisha, meaning that scholars believe that their prophetic words is a prophetical, prophetic oracle referred to here endorsing his rule. So ancient writers wrote about a prophetic oracle that said uh, King H would be king. And so that's just archaeological evidence, right, of Elijah and Elisha's uh, influence in the region. Okay? So I thought that was interesting because a lot of people are like, there's nothing that proves the Bible's real. It's like, you know, people say it's an analogy, it's a metaphor, blah, blah. No, there actually are a lot of sources that have them uh, in the, um, you know, what would you call them, extra biblical accounts? So well, even archaeologists, they thought they had found the, uh, some of the ancient tunnels. And, oh, absolutely. You know, they found Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, it's so obliterated, though. Like, you can tell there was a town there. But it's so obliterated that if they start digging, it's just going to turn. It's like it's dust. So they just leave it alone. Um, yeah, they have found a lot of neat, neat stuff. Okay, so here's the lesson. Okay, because I want to give you guys some lessons today. Sometimes you must decree the judgments of the Lord, which can be emotionally tough. You know, so obviously Elijah is struggling because he knows what's going to happen. Okay, so I already read about um, the uh, Jehoram taking over. Uh, now it says in verse uh, 19 that this new king walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons uh, forever. So the evil that's in Israel, this is a thing. It spreads. Well, and he, he doesn't say, but he said that, you know, he married um, Jezebel, Ahab's daughter, mm -hmm. Jezebel. Mm -hmm. And since she was a priestess, and we're going to assume that she brought her own daughters in on that. Probably. And the insinuation here is what I'm saying. Is mm -hmm. The insinuation is that that is why or a lot of what his problem was. Mm -hmm. Well, in, during King Ahab's reign, see, here's the deal. He brought Israel, the nation of Israel, not both that and Judah, the nation of Israel to its height. So for the people, that was proof that their gods, Baal and all them, were the true God. So they're at the height as a nation. And you've got prophets saying, hey guys, things are not good. But they were blinded by their prosperity, their military power, etc. Does that sound familiar? And so you got people warning them it's not good. That's like uh, when I was reading that book in the, the Russian mindset, they like, some of them still think Stalin was a great leader. Like you have to realize that when people look at history, they see it through their culture. When you look at the success of a nation, you think it's in the economy and the military, but the success of a nation are the people of God in that nation. And whether that nation stays true to its core principles of in God we trust, when you have wicked leaders doing wicked things, but the nation seems to still go, even with gas prices, still seems to be prosperous, then people will begin to doubt if there is a God because haven't people said, said over and over that we cannot say blessed if we don't return to God? Why should you turn to God if everything's good? So that's the thing. It's, it's a, a smoke and mirrors if people aren't careful. And it's also evidence of God's long-suffering, but also you can be a good ruler economically and hate God. You know, there's, there's principles that you can put in place that have nothing to do with following God. They're just principles. And we see that with, like, Bill Gates and different people like that. 
So the evils of Israel are seeping into Judah. It will also seal their fate as well. But God just cannot make himself um, begin the process of judgment against Judah yet. Now, um, you know, again, he walked in the house of Ahab. He probably brought in some more of the stuff, you know, that, um, like you said, Kathy, that Jezebel had. But because of his wicked ways, he sentenced his own children to death. In verse 20, it says, In his days, uh, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zaire with all his chariots and rose by night, he and his chariot commanders, and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him. But his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. Okay, so why did I say that this king has sentenced his children to death? Do y'all remember? Well, there's a death sentence on King Ahab and all his descendants. So the fact that this king of Judah married into the king of Israel tells me he didn't believe the word of the Lord. Because he literally, by marrying Ahab's descendants, sentenced all of his children and grandchildren and any other descendants to death, which does happen. All of them get wiped out. So that's a hubris. That's a rebellion. That's a pride. That you're like, eh. Or maybe you just don't care. Maybe she's a good-looking woman. He's like, hey. I want to take her as a wife, and he could care less about the judgment of the Lord. But have y'all noticed a pattern? One of the things that we've been seeing repeatedly that is a sign of what's to come is military conflict. Did y'all notice that? All of a sudden, nations that were under you begin to revolt. All of a sudden, you keep getting cyber attacks and different things. You know, you don't have to fight with weapons as much anymore. It's more of an economic battle, but still you start seeing things in the world positioning themselves. Did y'all hear Biden the other day say new world order? Mm -hmm. We have to, something, he said something very, that makes me very nervous, but he said um, that the world will look different in 10 years and then he said, and we have to get ready for the new world order. And tell me, Ukraine was handed over. The problem is Ukraine's not backing off. And in Ukraine, Jesus' name, they'll win. Ukraine I love those guys. had a taste of total freedom. Yes, they did. And you cannot, it's hard to put them back under an iron fist when they know what it's like to be free. Mm -hmm. That's their problem. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's Russia's problem. Yeah, that's what yeah. I mean. <laughs> and Russia doesn't care how many they lose. Uh, they'll just keep at it. Um, but anyway, I'm proud of those guys. And they are so pretty. Uh, okay. Now, in um, I, I want to clear up some things because, man, it can get confusing with all these names. Joram is an alternative spelling of Jehoram. Okay, so... I'm like, man, there's all these Jorums and Jehorums, and which one's the Orum I'm supposed to be looking at? You know what I mean? So uh, he was an obvious failure, uh, failure as a ruler. He only reigned for eight years. Now, here's a quick history. Jehoram ruled as a co-regent with his father Jehoshaphat for eight years until Jehoshaphat died. Then he reigned eight more on his own. Scholars believe he died of some bowel disease. They think it might have been dysentery. Jehoshaphat had seven sons, and he had given a decree, a degree of power to each one, but Jehoram murdered all of his brothers. So Jehoshaphat was related to Ahab by marriage, and so we're already seeing the word of the Lord, the decree coming to pass in Jehoshaphat's family because he married Ahab's daughter. So the brother kills all the sons. Um, so that, that's very interesting. They're killing off their own. Okay, now in verse 25, 
In the twelfth year of Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign. He reigned one year. His mother's name was Athaliah. She was the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. Now, Omri is the father of Ahab and all of them. He's the one that took over and began a dynasty. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and, and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab has done. For he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. He went from Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against King H of Syria at Ramoth Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against King H of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. Now Jezreel is definitely a place of judgment. Okay. So, we've also now got various raiders, Philistines, um, and the Ahabs are a couple that killed all of Jehoram's sons except for Ahaziah, the son of Athaliah, the daughter of Omri, or granddaughter. Okay, some records say that she was Ahab's sister, sisters, but we're not sure. Now, he goes down to make war with him. Joram's sick, plus he's wounded. But, I want to take... I want us to take note of the intermingling of blood in order to corrupt the line of Judah and entice them in. See, that was the enemy's plan. Because if they would have loved Jesus, they wouldn't have married into Ahab's line, but they didn't love Jesus. Of course, you know what I mean, God. They didn't love God, and so they just kept this whole intermingling thing going on where they should have cut it off because their descendants are going to end up dead. Well, I think it's interesting that they go into the background of Joram being the son. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it's not just like, you know, oh, yeah, he's so-and-so's son. It kind of goes in a little bit more depth, yes. which means it's important. It's and very it's important. And one of the tactics of the enemy is to corrupt the bloodline. He did it, you know, with the Nephilim. He's doing it in these kingly bloodlines. Um, now, don't you know, be of the mind that you're not supposed to, you know, mix bloodlines as far as races. That's stupid. But we're talking about in a, a, a line of judgment. There's See, there's two seeds in the earth. The seeds of God, the seeds of the enemy. Okay? And a lot of times, the seeds of the enemy are actually religious leaders. Like, if you look at... Um, I think it's 2 Corinthians. Like, it's so important to understand this. Yeah. Okay, so in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll start with verse 1, actually. Um, he says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now he's referring to religious uh, legalistic people coming in trying to get them to go back to the law. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, indeed, in every way we've made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you, who came from Macedonia, uh, let's see, when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you, God knows I do. So what's happening? 
He's got people that are coming in saying he's like a, he's just a nobody, you know. He's not educated, and he, you know, the way he talks and the way he does ministry, and he doesn't even, you know, y'all aren't even supporting him. That's not how rulers, you know, ministers are supposed to be, blah, 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 blah. So he's got these super apostles coming in, all polished, all professional in their suits with their entourage, right? And they're saying, we're the true apostles. So then it says, verse 12, And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to under, undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So these people look righteous. That people have got to understand that. They look righteous. They are skilled in the technique of manipulation. They are skilled in the ability to put on a commercial, put on a con, and make people think that they're more righteous than you are. Let me tell you something. If you're around somebody and it's not your own guilt and you feel less than around them, now again, I'm saying it's not in your own mind, but we've all been around those people that you just, what's the word? You just feel condemned. Yeah, but you can feel condemned and not even be around people. You know what I mean? But less you're than. right, you do. You feel, you feel condemned, you feel less than. Like they're looking down their nose at you. I tell you what. One of the things that really irritates me is an entourage. Now I know Jesus had his disciples. I'm not saying that, you know, you're living in a time where they're with him, they're going to protect him, which he didn't need it. You know, they probably just, you know, they're around him, protecting him from the crowds and stuff. And he's like, guys, I mean, I can literally walk through the crowds. You know, so they, they made themselves that. He didn't need that. But when you have in church you know, settings, pastors that build tunnels through the buildings so they don't have to be contaminated by the people, or when you have, it's like those movies where they're like walking in slow motion, you know, and they got their entourage to the side, and they come in in the middle of worship. You tell me that person's not prideful. I don't care. I don't care what signs they, they do, what wonders they do. I don't care if they prophesy with 100% accuracy. When you, in, when you interrupt the worship of God with your entourage, there is something wrong with you, right? So that's what he's referring to. They're super apostles. They showed up and they looked really good. And he's like, no, these people are fake. So you want to be really careful and make sure that we don't you know, fall for it. So we've got where, again, you have a situation where things look good and things are very, very bad. The uh, letters, was it Laodicea or which or Smyrna maybe? One of the churches was very prosperous. You know, things were going very good. And the Lord was like, actually, you're very poor and you need your eyes healed. I think it might have been Smyrna. It's either Smyrna or Laodicea. Okay, so then in verse 1 of uh, chapter 9 of 2 Kings, then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows. Then lead him to an inner chamber. Take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Don't linger. <laughs> it's understandable for sure. That's, okay. That's called a bug out, by the way. It's called a what? Bug out. Bug out? I can see that. Yeah. You better bug out of the dugout. <laughs> so, now, here's the next phase of instituting the judgment against Jezebel and her line. Okay? This is treason. So that's why Elijah's like, you better run and run fast. Kick up those well, rocks, dust, everything you Gehazi, need to do. So we're back to somebody else besides Gehazi. Yeah, hopefully Gehazi's, so, you know, retired. Yeah, you know. yeah <laughs> see, that's why they're a little bit out of order. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's another... what happened when it got formulated. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, which I'm sure he was shaking in his boots, went to Ramoth Gilead, and when he had came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, so that I may take uh, may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab uh, will perish, and I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of uh, Naboth, and like the house of Basha, the son of uh, Aj. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. And he opened the door, and he fled. Okay, so Ramoth Gilead, very important city. That's where kings were anointed. Jehu is a commander. He's not from a kingly line. And so why was he anointed? One task. Execute the judgment of the Lord. That's what he was anointed for. God was now going to avenge the blood of the prophets and the servants. Okay? Can you imagine that's why you're anointed? To start killing people? When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said, You know the fellow in his talk. And they said, That is not true. Tell us now. He said, Well, thus he spoke to me, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare step, steps and blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Now this is neat. The, the people recognized he was anointed as king before he was anointed as king. Right? You don't have to worry about assigning titles to yourself. Who cares? Titles are functions. The only time that you saw the apostles use their titles is when they had to enforce their authority. In other words, it's like, okay, I'm about to tell you something as your apostle. You know, I ain't playing around here. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's as a prophet, I'm telling you blah, 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 okay? So there was never like a self-seeking, selfish ambition. I'm, you know, evangelist, pastor, apostle, doctor, uh, prophet, so-and-so. Like, there was none of that nonsense. Um, and, and then, you know, with Jesus, they'd call him rabbi. He never acknowledged that, right? Uh, he was, and he followed the laws that were in place. But the point is, people will see what you carry. Actually, the discerning people will see what you carry. Other people will be like, huh? What? And then they won't get the prophet's reward. That's why where you got the one king who didn't notice the nobody that was about to become somebody, it is very important to notice the nobodies around you because they are somebodies. And I mean that in a good way. you got to recognize the gifting in everybody. I'm wondering, uh, you know, he was told, the, the young prophet was told not to hang around, basically, run. But, I, you know, you wonder why. And do you think it was the temptation that he might have had to expand on his word that God did not say? Maybe. I do think there was an element of danger, and mm -hmm. you couldn't trust that everybody in the room would have agreed, right? Right. So it's kind of surprising to me that they did. They're like, oh, you're the next, the next right. king, right? Because, again, Ahab has a country that's stable. And uh, so you've got this situation where probably, but also notice they said, this mad fellow. So he must have been acting weird. Maybe betting, coming, leaving, running. He's more like, I can do all things in God. I can do all things in God. I can do all things in God. I can only think he's a little bit anxious. Oh, I'm sure. A little sweaty. Maybe a little bit like. There's no telling. But I do. I find it very. Like Caesar. He was able to take control of Rome because he was a general, right? He was a general of the army, and they recognized and respected him as the leader. So it's, it's very interesting. I would have been scared spitless on my word. Okay. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth Gilead. 
against uh, King H of Syria. And that may be why, too, that the ones that were eating with the commander Jehu loved him, but the ones that were, um, you know, out in the field didn't. Oh, that's why they're so... They didn't print double-sided. That's why it's a book. Because we're almost done. I'm like, how are we almost done? Oh, that's funny. Y'all were all scared and nervous, afraid you're going to be here till three. <laughs> okay. Anyway, back to our story. Uh, let's see. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with um, King H of Syria. So Jehu said, if this is your decision, let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Now Jehu mounted his chariot, went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, had come down to visit the king of Israel, Joram. Okay, so basically he's telling his commanders, okay, if you guys really want me to be king, don't tell anybody. Now I'm going to go and I'm going to start executing my job. Okay? Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came, and he said, I see a company. And Joram said, we'll take a horseman and send to meet them and let him say, is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, this, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported saying, the messenger reached them, but he's not coming back. So he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, the king has said, is it peace? And Jehu said, what do you have to do with peace? turn around and ride behind me. Again, the watchman was like, well, he reached him, but he's not coming back either. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nishmi, for he drives furiously. <laughs> Have you ever ridden with those people? Their driving scares you to, you know, you're like, am I going to survive? Am I going to live? Obviously, Joram, or Jehu was that kind of driver. Well, I think it's interesting <laughs> that Trump was... Um, Likened to Jehu. Yes, he was. Reckless. Mm -hmm. And he kind of was. Mm -hmm. In a Maybe, calculated he, way. Yes, yeah. he had a mean tweet. Let's just put it that Furious <laughs> tweet. <laughs> yep. So obviously Jehu has a driving record. So all the chess pieces are in place. Ahaziah and Joram are both tied to Ahab, which is why the son of the prophet was instructed to anoint him at the time he did. So God does not use humans as pawns, but he definitely knows how to get them where he wants them. Okay? So Joram said, Make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram king of Israel and Ahaziah king of Judah set out each in his chariot and went to meet Jehu and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Remember Naboth? that was murdered by Jez Jezebel? I find that very fitting. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace? And he answered, What peace can there be, so long as the whorings and sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Ooh, called out his mom. Yeah, well, Them there are fighting words. You know what I'm saying? Still you called my mama what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, your mom is this. <laughs> so Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart, and he sank in the chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, I didn't know he had killed his sons too. Declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. So here's the deal. Jehu heard the word of the Lord to that king. Mm -hmm. It makes you wonder if he was like, I could do that. Well, you know what I mean? It makes you wonder if he's like, I could execute him. I could do that. All these others gave no regard. Mm -mm. None of them. Mm -mm. They kept marrying in, intermarrying, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, or making treaties with them. Yeah. I mean, we've seen that all along. He took all of this to heart. 
He did. He he was actually um, ready. He yeah. was ready right then. He was. And not that he was an angel. I mean, he was ruthless. Well, he was a ruthless leader. But, but, you know, when the second one didn't come back, they said, well, it must be Jehu because he's driving like a madman. So he had a reputation ahead of him. Obviously. Obviously. But I like that he's executing the judgment perfectly. He's like, okay, get his body, put it in the vineyard. Get his body, put it in the vineyard. Like he's doing exactly what God said was going to happen. I find that interesting. And right now. He yeah. Didn't, he didn't wait around. Yeah. He didn't make a plan. Let's put it this way. He just went. He just did it. <laughs> I didn't know what I wrote in my notes. <laughs> Listen to this. Even in his wounded state, Joram goes out to meet Jehu along with Ahaziah, king of Judah. <coughs> and Jehu called his mama a hoe. <laughs> <laughs> he did. Horns and sorceries. <laughs> okay. I cried myself up. <laughs> so when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagen, and Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by somewhere. And he fled to Megiddo, and he died there. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in the tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign. Okay, now here's my favorite part. And that's uh, Jezebel's judgment. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, peace with you, you Zimri, murderer of your master? Remember Zimri? He's the one that killed so he could take over. And then he was ended up dead, I think, like a week later. He lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two of the eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the walls and on the horses, and they trampled her. Then he went in. He ate and he drank. He's a little bit hungry and thirsty after all his shenanigans. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. So when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, that no, that, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. I find that very, very interesting. Um, yeah, it was Zimri that only reigned for one week. And Naboth, his murder was repaid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the prophets that she killed, you know. And, I mean, he, you know, he was showing some respect, like, well, you know, go get the <laughs> queen. And let's bury her. You know, she is royalty. Nothing was left. So, obviously, dogs ate her, like God said they would do. And I find it interesting, eunuchs, now they're castrated just so that they're faithful to the queen, right? Their job is to protect her. And basically, it was kind of like, you guys have one choice. You either throw her over there or I'm going to come up and get you. You know, so they're like, uh-uh. And they just push her over. So there's no loyalty. You can imagine. I mean, just picture Hillary Clinton. You know, Secret Service. They could not stand serving her because she was like, don't talk to me. She wouldn't let them talk to her. You know, so it's kind of a similar thing. They didn't want or like their uh, leader. And so they had no problem throwing her under the bus. Or you could say the dogs. Or the chariot. <laughs> or the chariot. The horses <laughs> goes. Through her Okay, now here is where I want to end, and it's in uh, 2 Timothy, because again, it's very important to understand God is faithful, even if we're not. So, uh, I'm going to read the English Standard Version, and then the Passion. It says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And then in the Passion it says, You can trust these words. 
If we're joined with him in his death, then we're joined with him in his life. If we are joined with him in his sufferings, then we will reign together with him in his triumph. But if we disregard him, then he will also disregard us. But even if we are faithless, he will still be full of faith, for he never wavers in his faithfulness to us. Now they think they were actually quoting a hymn. But here's the deal. God's word, word is as sure as the sun rising and setting every day. If he tells us he is going to do something, that's it. There are times where he will communicate for, uh, future events that he wants us to pray against. You know, he, like where it says he looked for, um, what was it, one person. One person that was standing in the gap, he looked for. He went back and forth, could not find one person to delay the judgment of the Lord. And so he, he does. He wants us to intercede so he can intervene. However, there are other things, absent intercession or it's just too late, that things will not be changed. They will happen. Nothing will stop them. This is one of those times. In spite of Ahab's repentance, all of his line had to be eliminated. All of it. Or it would have made it worse. So, on that cheerful note. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's interesting that maybe God knew that he, that uh, Jehu wasn't going to actually, like, desecrate her body. Mm-hmm. And so... Now he sent the dogs to do it. Yes. Well, and it makes you wonder too, would they have started worshiping her? You know, I wonder, uh, because they were already, you know, bell worshippers. If she was a priestess, it makes you wonder if they would have started worshiping her, like made a shrine yeah. and you know, all that nonsense as well. Kinda like Moses' body. They probably would have done that. Eventually his bones probably would have been carried down somewhere and they would have made a shrine to him. So it's interesting. Anybody else? Anybody have any thoughts? Well, and I think um, it's interesting that when Elijah looked at Haziel, Haziel became embarrassed because I think he recognized, he, he knew what he had in him. Right. And he, at that moment, realized Elijah did too. Or he Elijah. was an introvert. You know, it just makes you really nervous and uncomfortable and people just start staring at you when you're an introvert. You know, you're just kind of like, stop. But he already knew, he already knew that, uh, that Elijah was, Elisha was in the know. Yep. I mean, he already, they already knew that, or because he, he came to get the know. And it's amazing how weird people get when they're around people that are prophetic. They can get, like, all weird and think things, and you're like, dude, I mean, what, you know, like that one guy, you don't have to shake my hand to, you know, know what, you know, it was in my heart and stuff like that. I'm like, that's right. I don't need to. You just opened your mouth and did it for you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, people get weird around prophetic people. But, uh, all right, well, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you so much that you are faithful. And because you're faithful, because you dwell in us, then we can also be faithful. We can be faithful to you, but also full of faith. And so, Father, we don't want to ignore or dismiss words you say. We want to have a prophetic discernment on what is from you and what, it, what isn't. And Father, it's been said over and over, there is a countdown of decision coming when it comes to America. There is. And I know we've been generous to other nations when they've met with disaster. Uh, we've had many, many presidents that have been allies of uh, Israel. Uh, we've done things that are right, but the heart of this country, the ability to kill babies, the turning away from you, the eliminating you out of all of the institutions, uh, Father, there is a coming battle, and that battle is going to be between those who are going to serve you and those who are not going to serve you. And so I ask, Father, that you help us, your people, the seeming nobodies, to make a shift in the right direction in our government. We cannot dismiss the role of government. Any government that aligns itself with the enemy's agenda has doomed a country. And so, Father, we ask that you drain the swamp, 
that you clear out the swamp creatures. People that, man, they've been there for decades, older than dirt. And I ask, Father, that you get them out and that you get people that love you in. I pray, Father, that it start with the local elections and the county elections and the state election, but also the federal, that there be a realignment to the true order of government in this nation as well as understanding our founding documents and, and how they serve us as a country. I pray, Father, that churches that have their slick super apostles and their slick super pastors and people that have this um, appearance of righteousness but don't know you, that all of those things be exposed and that you get the true uh, pastors and apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers in place, Father, so that we can restore things back to your original intent in the book of Acts. A mobile, elite, excellent, um, uh, what's, what's the word, Father? Agile um, body of people that can go into culture, go into society, society and produce practical change. I pray the gifts are not just gift exchanges within the church, but instead the gifts are used outside of the church to solve problems and demonstrate the wisdom of Christ in us, the expectation of glory. Father, I guess what I'm asking is that you take us outside of ourselves where we're always thinking about us, always thinking about what we want, always thinking about what the church needs and blah, blah, blah. But instead, we're willing to be uncomfortable. We're willing to go into the places that are dark. We're willing to go into the places that need you, that we're not afraid of it. And Father, I pray that you toughen us up, both spiritually, mentally, and even physically. I thank you, Father, for your mercy. We don't deserve it. 